Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey Matty, how are you? Mike, what's yeah. happening? Uh, not much, now we're doing the podcast after a bit of a break. Three, four weeks. It's been a while, sorry everyone. We um, Michael was sick last week. Yeah, I was unfortunately unwell. We planned to do the podcast, but I... And I was all set up, ready to go, and then Michael ate something dodgy, and you, your imagination can take care of the rest. Yeah, let's just say that I ate some undercooked cow muscle. And uh, that cow muscle that was undercooked did not go well with my gut. <laughs> and so that's very timely because today we're going to talk about muscle. Are we? More so. We did that four months ago when we did, <laughs> when we did skeletal muscle anatomy. Yeah, what I are think, we doing I then? Think Physiology. We introduced, I think we introduced what muscles were and different types, if mm. I remember correctly. But today we're going to focus on skeletal muscle. Yes. Which means the muscles that move your skeleton. Okay. And talk about actually how they work. So how muscles contract to move the skeleton. Yep. Create work. Allow yep. for things to happen. But Biceps before we start, Michael just has to go through his normal housekeeping. Uh, of course. If you'd like to contact Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike and ask us questions, which people have been doing. People have been sending us emails. It's been wonderful contacting us. You can contact we got a mention us. from Dr. Carl. We did. We did get a mention Who's from Dr. Who's like, Carl. if you don't know Dr. Carl, because Legend. he's Australian, he's like the Australian best science education, what? Freak. Freak? Yeah. He's brilliant. He's yeah. just, he's probably Australia's best ever, maybe one of the world's best science communicators. Yeah. So, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com. But we're also on all the social media outlets. You can see us on Twitter. If you type in Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike's medical podcast, also with the handle at GU Biosciences. You can also use that handle for Instagram at GU Biosciences and we're on Facebook if you just type in Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike's medical podcast. Ask us questions, correct us, tell us if you want us to do particular episodes. We've got many people sending us emails asking us, can you do an episode on this, on this, and we will try our hardest to get to all of them. So thank you for all those emails and for your wonderful support. If you like our podcast, go on iTunes and give us five stars. Leave a nice, welcoming comment. <laughs> if you don't like us, just don't listen to us and don't leave a review. <laughs> That's that'll. We got one single star. Um, who? Someone must hate you out there, Matt, because no, no one dislikes me. I honestly me. think that was you. That was uh, your doing because you said something offensive to. <laughs> People who like Himalayan rock salt. That's right. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what it would have been. 
That one time I blasted people feeding pink Himalayan rock soul. Let's get, let's get on to the podcast, shall we? Yes, let's do. All right, muscle contraction. So should we reiterate a little bit about the components of muscle? We know that there's three different muscle types, right? Skeletal muscle, smooth mm-hmm. muscle, cardiac muscle. Yep. And we're going to focus, like you said, on the skeletal muscle. Yes. And that skeletal muscle is attached to tendons and ligaments also, and bones. Also bone, muscle to muscle. Muscle to muscle. Yeah, so you can your muscles in your face don't always connect to bones. Okay. So if it connects from a muscle to a bone, that's via a ligament. If it connects from... A muscle to bone will be tendon. Okay, okay. Yeah, keep going. And then a muscle to a muscle is a ligament? Muscle to muscle, uh, you could have an aponeurosis, which is like a flat tendon. And that's all what you get with your abs? You could have certain, yeah, in your abs that separates the muscle bellies. Or yep. you, on your scalp, you have two muscle bellies, one on your forehead. Mm-hmm. That's the one that can get you to crinkle your um, eyebrows. Yeah. That's the one you put Botox into, Michael. Um, Only on one side. <laughs> so I look like The Rock. Doing my. Yeah. Can you Which smell like The now. Rock is cool? Uh, then it has this big aponeurosis over the top of your head. Yeah. And then down to the back of your head is another muscle, which is the occipitalis. <laughs> so you got the frontalis. How, did, how are you an anatomist without the ability to speak complex words? I haven't, said that. Simple I, words. I haven't said that word in a long time. Which one? Occipitalis. There you go. I got it. So you could call that muscle as a collective the fronto-occipitalis. And that goes from the forehead to the back of the head. Yeah, with aponeurosis, which is a big, lo- big flat tendon, which is kind of over the crown of your head. Is that the right? So right. Top of your head. So we've got, what, around about 600-odd skeletal muscles in the body? I have no idea. Yeah, it's around about that. Okay. And they all play a role in movement. Mm-hmm. And heat generation is very important as well. We know that that is one of the functions of skeletal muscle because when we're cold, we shiver. Mm-hmm. And shivering is simply the contraction and relaxation over and over and over again of skeletal muscles to generate heat to warm us up. Yeah, and so with skeletal muscles, it's fair, and I think we said this in the last podcast, it's fair to say that they're generally considered voluntary, right? So you have yeah. voluntary control over them. Except the diaphragm. Yeah, you still do have voluntary control over it, so you can still control your breathing, mm. but you can't just stop it mm. for forever, right? You'll just... I don't think you could even do it to the point of passing out, could you? No, because you'll have central... Unless you, like, taped your mouth and nose shut, but it still would tell the muscle to contract. And so I think also shivering is a good example of where you have a voluntary muscle, but then a system kicks in where it becomes involuntary, right? Yes, that's right. So don't ask me the neurological networking for that, but I guess there's just a... Midbrain... And brainstem. Well, I mean, there's a something that kicks in that uh, overrides sorry, your... Pon- midbrain and pons. Something will kick in to override that. Yeah, and that's actually quite a complex little pathway there. Feeding down to the phrenic nerve, telling the diaphragm to contract and relax. All right, so if we take a skeletal muscle cell, should we start at the larger muscle fiber and move... Uh, larger muscle itself yeah. and move down to the... Actual uh, muscle cell? Yeah, so let's use the example that everyone probably gives in the bicep. Yeah. So the bicep, which is that muscle in your upper arm that sticks out the front. Brachium. Okay. So that's the... the, So when you bring your uh, hand to your head in a flexed manner. Pretend your hand is a snake head. 
And I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows what their bicep is, so you right. don't need to explain that. So the bicep's this big bulky group of muscle cells, right? Yeah. And so how does that break down into the individual cell? Well, that m- muscle itself is surrounded by a fascicle. So this is connective tissue that sort of bounds all the smaller muscle fibers together, right? Yep. And these smaller muscle fibers, so a muscle fiber is a muscle cell, mm-hmm. right? And so you're going to have hundreds, thousands of these muscle fibers or muscle cells bound together to form the bicep, for example. Right. Now, because... And the bicep's joined generally up to your scapula, mm-hmm. okay, which is up in your shoulder joint, and goes down to both the bones in your forearm, which is going to be the radius and ulna. Yes. And so that's by tendon, okay? And so essentially what you do when you want to bring your, you know, bend your elbow and bring your wrist closer to your shoulder, okay, that muscle, the bicep muscle, is just shortening, just coming together. So from a long muscle, longer, when you've got your elbow straightened out, to bringing it completely flex as far as you can, that bicep muscle is now just shortened to the smallest point it can. And we need to talk about how that shortening happens. Mm. So which is today, which is today, yeah, right? which is today. But in that bicep, which you can kind of hold in your hand, so you use your other hand and grab it, so you can kind of fit the whole bicep muscle in your palm and your hand. So all of that is just groups of really long cells which run the whole length of your upper arm. And so, like I said, they're muscle fibers, muscle fibers, also known as muscle cells. And if you take just one of these muscle fibers, you'll find that it looks like uh, basically inception in which you've got all these smaller subunits just repeating over and over and over again. So a big muscle, uh, big muscle is made up of muscle fibers, and then these muscle fibers are made up of something called myofibrils. Mm-hmm. So in one muscle cell, you've got a whole bunch of these long, thin tubes called myofibrils that go the entire length of the muscle cell. Mm-hmm. And in skeletal muscle, they look banded. So they've got these dark bands and then light bands and dark bands and light bands. And this is what gives skeletal muscle that striated appearance. Yeah. That's what striation means, striped. Now, the reason why we have these light and dark bands is due to the even smaller subunits that make up these myofibrils. Now, these smaller subunits we spoke about in the last episode as being actinomycin. Mm. Now, these are proteins. And again, these are filamentous proteins. So, they're long and thin. And the two, actin, myosin, you're going to have myosin, which is the thicker filament, and actin, which is the thinner filament. Mm. Now, when you've got a lot, and the way that they are uh, dispersed throughout this myofibril is lengthways. So, you're going to have, if you think of this long, thin tube, which is the myofibril, Mm -hmm. inside you're going to have more long, thin um, components of proteins, and these are the actinomycin. Think of that you're going to have some thick ones and some thin ones. The thick ones are the myosin, thin ones are the actin. Now, at at the place in which... You've got numerous thick actin overlapping other numerous thick actin. It's going to look darker in appearance. And that's the darker striations. Then there's going to be areas where there's less of the, thin my- uh, of the thick myosin overlapping. And there's going to be the lighter areas. Does that make sense? So these filaments... It's, this is, it's going to be hard to do without looking at a picture. These filaments... 
you know how I said that you got a big long muscle, and in that muscle you got a big long muscle cell that goes the whole length, mm. and then you got Many a, cells. and then you got a myofibril that goes the whole length, yeah. right? But these myofibrils that go the whole length of the muscle cell contain these filaments, actinomycin. They don't go the whole length of the muscle cell. They only they go for a sh- short distance and then stop, and then a new one's there. Mm. And the short distance stop, and a new one's there. And that's why I'm saying that you're going to have areas where there's thick myosin overlapping. Yeah, which looks dark, right? And, yeah, and, and then, then the uh, thin actin, um, actin overlapping, which, which looks, looks light. light. That's right. Now, if you look at the myosin, they look like... A, um, Sticking off adjacent to or perpendicular to the actual myosin length are these little golf club head looking things, right? They look like little fists coming out. Of, of, the, my- of the myosin. Of the myosin. Yep. And these are called the myosin heads. Now, these are the little subunits that attach to the actin. Why do they attach to the actin? Because when they attach to the actin, they pull the actin in towards it and that means the whole muscle cell shortens. So, each kind of contractile unit which is called a sarcomere sarcomere is contains these groups of myosin and actin and then another its next neighbor is another sarcomere that's right. another sarcomere and another sarcomere actually that's a that's a good point so if you take the the myofibril and break it up into sarcomeres these are discrete units like kind of like uh, shipping containers that are just next to each other Okay, right. you, okay. Ship, but shipping containers don't contract. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to make it sound like they're little block units. Mm. They, they kind of fit next to each other. But they are linked together. They are linked together. That's true. And inside, they've got these units, which are the actinomycin, yep. which when they connect to each other, they'll pull each other towards each other. Mm. So they go inwards. So that shipping container would get, would get shorter. Yeah, the, okay, let's use the shipping container analogy. Tell me if this makes sense. Let's say we've got all these shipping containers lined up next to each other, right? In a long and they're connected line. in yeah. a long line, and that big long line is the myofibril, and yep. each one of those shipping containers is a sarcomere, yep. right? Inside that shipping container, let's say right down the middle, inside there is um, a big pole that goes right down the middle of that container, mm-hmm. right? Of each of those containers. Then attached to that middle pole, you've got all these other poles that go along the length of the container coming out of that middle pole. They're going to be, and they're thick poles, they're going to be the mycin. Then you're going to have thin poles that There's come... A lot of poles here. I know. <laughs> that, that come off the ends, either ends of the containers mm. that go towards the middle but don't connect to the middle. So connected to the middle are thick mycin spreading out towards the ends but don't touch the ends and then the thin actin which begin on the walls end walls of the container that go towards the middle but don't touch the middle. The middle pole. That's right. And then those thick myosin coming off the middle have these little head units that if they were to attach to the thinner poles they would pull inwards Mm. they would pull the walls of the container inwards to shorten that container. Yep. Does that make sense? To, to maybe go half its length. How many yeah. people have turned the podcast off at this or point? turned it on now. Oh, yeah. And thought on. we were talking about um, naval logistics. <laughs> 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 All right. Anyway, we've spoken about that last so episode. So, essentially, How, every single shipping ca- container will come together, and so the whole length Shortens. will shorten. That's right. And that will pull the radius and ulna towards the shoulder and that will allow you to contract... If those shipping containers are located in your bicep. Now, we need to talk about how this happens. So I think what we should begin with is the nervous system. 
Don't you think? Yep. Okay. So let's say we start at our brain. Is the brain a good place to start with the nervous system? No, I think you can start at the spinal cord. But we need to tell a muscle to contract because it's conscious. I think it's going to be too lengthy. I don't think so. All right. How about if I do it like this? In our brain, in our brain, maybe not in our brain, our brain is our brain. So our brain will have a frontal lobe and a, what's the lobe behind the frontal lobe? Parietal lobe. And if you have a look, there is this sulcus, which is this dip that separates the frontal lobe from the parietal lobe, right? Do you remember what the name of that sulcus is called, that dip? Central. Central sulcus, which means in front of that central sulcus, sulcus, there's a bump up, and behind there's a bump up as well. So the one in front is called the... Uh, pre. Pre-central gyrus, which is bump up, and the one behind... Post. Is the post-central gyrus. Okay. We want to move a limb. There's a part of our brain that's dedicated to muscle movement. Just use the bicep. Continue. The bicep so for the, the rest of the podcast. The right bicep. The right bicep. My strongest bicep. Okay. We, Good to know. We. So to contract that right bicep, essentially we come from the left pre-central gyrus. Is that correct? Perfect. Okay. That's where we have. That's where our motor control center. Mm. Let me rephrase that. Our primary motor cortex is located. Okay. That's where we think of an activity or a movement to happen. Now, without, like you said, there's a big podcast if we start talking about all the parts of the brain that are dedicated to motor movement, which Mm. include the cerebellum and the basal ganglia or basal nuclei. We're ignoring those at the moment. Mm -hmm. Let's just say this signal now gets sent that I want to contract my bicep, goes to the spinal cord. Okay, so the neuron sits, its cell body sits up in that gyrus that you mentioned. Yep. And what's this neuron called? Uh, The upper motor neuron. Is that what you meant? Yep. So the upper motor neuron for this particular bicep is located... Do you say bicep? It really sounds like you say bicep. Bicep. You put a T on the end of bicep. No. Are you sure? Yeah. Everyone be conscious of what Matt's saying. (laughs) So this neuron, which is sitting up in that Left left side of your brain. Yeah. Okay. Now fires. Yep. So it's electrical re- electrically active. Yeah. It's got a very very long axon. And it's essentially going to come down, cross over to the other side of your brain. Where? Kind of around the uh, brain stem region. Yep. So that's uh, back of your neck, mm-hmm. high up though. Mm-hmm. Kind of probably behind your ears region. So that's, that's where this upper motor neuron goes across from the left side to the right side. Yeah, kind of near the pyramids of your of your medulla. And that's called decussation. Yep. And then it comes down and it's going to stop at about between, say, C5 and T1. So, cervical okay. vertebrae 5 or cervical nerve 5? Yeah, cervical level C5, so yeah. cervical C, yeah. 5, 6, 7, yeah. 8, T1. Okay, gotcha. so that, that kind of region it's going to stop. Yep. Okay. And then it ends. That neuron now ends. So that that upper motor neuron goes the length of the uh, left pre-central gyrus mm. of the uh, primary sensory uh, primary motor cortex yep. and goes all the way down to between C5 to T1. Yep. Okay. And then it stops. Stops, ends there. Okay. And then it, and then it synapses, which means kind of... Talks to? Talks to, yeah. It doesn't connect to, 
but it's very close, mm. very close to the next neuron. Okay, so it talks to the next neuron, which is called the lower motor neuron. Okay, and it how many motor neurons are there? Where, in the body? No, in a pathway, in a motor pathway. No idea. Isn't there just an upper and a lower? You mean just for one, like... Yeah, in one muscle pathway. Right, but sure, to, mo- to move a number of cells, essentially to, to contract the number of these muscle cells in your bicep. Mm. But if you want to... Bicep, you do say bicep. No, bicep. But if you want to contract the whole entire bicep, okay, the whole yes. thing, yeah. which is essentially your most maximum force that you can generate mm. at your bicep. So if you want to lift up, you know, a dumbbell of, I don't know, 50 kilos... Um, you need to use basically your whole entire bicep, right? Sure. But there's only an but upper motor neuron and a lower motor neuron for each muscle cell. No, this is where it gets complicated. But let's just keep going with okay. it. We can, we can okay. add in this complexity. Okay. We've just got the one upper motor neuron at this point mm-hmm. that's stopped at the C, C5 to the T1 mm-hmm. level. Just, let's say, lower neck. Okay. Stops there. Now there's another neuron. It doesn't quite connect. There's a little gap between it. And they talk to each other through chemicals, okay? Now the lower motor neuron fires, so it becomes electrically active. And now it projects, comes out of the spinal cord. At that level. At at that level, at the front of the spinal cord. Yeah. So think of your spinal cord like a big long tube. Yeah. So at the front of it, so at your front tummy end. end, Tubby? uh, I don't want to be too anatomically accurate. (laughs) What would you say? The front of your body. So your face side, yeah. it comes Wouldn't out. Just anterior. Okay, anterior. If we have, have to or, use that. Or, or are you happy to say ventral? Or, or ventral. If you say tummy, then we'll say ventral. All right, comes out. Okay, and essentially what it's going to do now is going to run this neuron because it's going to your bicep. It's going to run out kind of just under your collarbone, your mm-hmm. clavicle, and come through your axilla, so armpit. Yeah. And if you're really good, sometimes if you kind of palpate under your armpit. You can, and with like a finger or thumb, you can go in a bit deep and, and you get feel that tingly, tingly sort of feeling. That's actually your uh, pressing on those nerves. What nerve? Well, there's a whole that? bundle there. There's a whole bundle called the brachial plexus, which is complicated. So, plexus is like a, a braid, right? Yeah. And we can talk about it another time, but okay. there's a lot in there. There's a whole like bowl of spaghetti almost in there that mm. do it, that essentially controls your whole um, fingers, elbow. Right, well, let's just focus on the one that's going to the to the bicep. So now it's going to come, this one low, low, lower motor neuron. Mm-hmm. It's going to come down into the bicep belly now. Yeah. Okay. So kind of where's that located? Mid, mid arm, let's say. Yeah. Mid upper arm, and that neuron now, the lower motor neuron now ends, okay. finishes. Now does it does it finish with a single synapse or does it no, branch into multiple synapses? It'll have multiple synapses, and this this is why now. That one neuron can, in theory, activate multiple motor cells. So this or, is an important point because muscle cells, should I say? Unlike other muscles in the body that need nervous innervation for contraction, skeletal each skeletal muscle cell needs its own individualized innervation. Yep, that's an important point. In the heart, that's not the case. You just need to stimulate a single muscle cell. And that muscle depolarization wave spreads throughout all the others. And that's why the heart muscle acts as a syncytium, which means all cells act as one cell or one cell act as all cells. But for skeletal muscle, 
you'll only contract the muscle cell that's been innovated by a neuron. Yeah. And that's but the, important. But, that, but one neuron can activate multiple cells. Correct. Yeah, yes. Right. So now what's going to happen is this neuron is coming down to sit, not touching, but very close to touching the membrane of that muscle cell. Mm-hmm. And that muscle membrane we call the sarcolemma. Sarcolemma, okay. which is Sarco, just the... I think, means like meat. Yeah, flesh. Flesh. So that's... When when you hear the prefix sarco, it usually just means skeletal muscle. Yeah. Okay. And a sarcolemma is synonymous with cell membrane. So yep. think of all... The, so it's just a you know, phospholipid bilayer. Yep. But so, for skeletal muscle. So that end of that neuron will come down and just sit really close to it, not on it, not touching it, little gap. But about to talk to it. It's going to talk to it. So now there's this relationship between the neuron and the muscle cell and they're going to have this uh, conversation. One talks, one listens. So it's kind of like a marriage, you know. So one does all the talking, one does all the listening. I'm sure you're here. the one that does all the talking. <laughs> I'm, I'm a very I'm good wife listener. I'm a, my wife is... Um, I'm a good listener, Michael. Yeah, well, I'm let, a good <laughs> let's just say your wife needs to be a very patient human being. Let's just say, and she is. She All right. to be a saint. That's a great analogy, by the way. Do you like it? It's uh, average. Av- right. Average at best. So, this conversation is at an area called the neuromuscular junction. Excellent. And this is well uh, where we're going to take the conversation next. Yeah. Because... So, we, we when... know... We know... Are you going to keep talking? Yeah, I want to keep talking. Yeah. Uh, we know that the whole point of this is to shorten the muscle. Mm. So, sh- to shorten the bicep. And we know... Bicep... I'm just going to point it out every time. But we're, we're not going to focus on the whole bicep here. We're just going to focus on one muscle, f- one muscle fiber. Yeah. And those are all those long shipping containers, and we need to bring them all together um, to cause that muscle to contract. Right. Yeah. Now the way it does that is, you know, through those mice and golf club heads, which are going to pull the actin towards it, which shorten each of those sarcomeres, which is that one shipping container. Bring all of them in together. That's going to shorten it all. Now, that's quite a complicated thing to put it all together, so we can break it into segments. So, we'll start at this neuromuscular junction. Yeah, so we'll start there, which is the how we get the nerve impulse into activating the muscle, or not maybe not the muscle, get a chemical reaction in the muscle. Is that fair to say? Or Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, you're, you're, you're basically changing energy types. Right. So... You'll have. We all know now because we've done a podcast on action potentials, and we know we that should, we should know that. Yeah. And we know that when nerves send signals, it's basically just a domino effect of sodium jumping into the cells, yeah. right? So and as sodium's this, got a plus charge. Yep. So as this sodium with the positive charge jumps into the cells, that's the electrical signal that's been sent down the neuron. All this positive stuff jumping into the cell yep. domino effect yep. once all this positive sodium jumps into the se- into the neuron and gets to the end of the neuron or at least right close to the end of the neuron yep right right near so this the, is the lower motor neuron the lower motor neuron all right great. right before we hit the very end yep. with the, which is known as the axonal terminus yep. yep the sodium that jumps in right at the end stimulates not any more sodium to jump in but positive calcium to jump in now, as positive calcium jumps in right at the end of the neuron, this is the stimulus to tell these little bubbles, these what we call vesicles that are formed mm-hmm. at the end of these neurons, which hold neurotransmitters, neurotransmitters to be released. Yeah, that's now, a chemical. For muscle cells, sorry, for muscle neurons that innovate muscle, so motor neurons, 
This neurotransmitter is what, Matt? Uh, acetylcholine. Yes, acetylcholine. And so acetylcholine's sitting here waiting to be released from these vesicles. Right at the end of the nerve. Calcium is the signal that tells them to be yep. released. Yep. So now these little vesicles bind to the end of the neuron and release their contents, which is acetylcholine, which then what they what they do is they diffuse across that space between the neuron and the sarcolemma which is the muscle, muscle. cell membrane. Yep. Now, right. as this acetylcholine diffuses, it means it's going from a high concentration gradient to a low, and as it diffuses across, it will inevitably bind to receptors that are specific to acetylcholine, known as cholinergic receptors. Brilliant. Now, when an acetylcholine molecule binds to a cholinergic receptor, it then transduces a signal, which is a chemical signal, which is coming from the acetylcholine, again, into an electrical signal because acetylcholine is the key to open many doors. What these doors are are more sodium channel doors. So now that membrane becomes permeable to more sodium ions, the plus sodium, to jump into those Which is kind of what happened in the neuron. Exactly. Higher up. So essentially, as you get sodium going into cells, the inside of the cell becomes more positive. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, and gives it a positive charge, which what we call is depolarizing it. Yes. Okay? Um, but as we came down to the bottom of the neuron, we couldn't get that kind of sodium charge to jump across that cleft into yeah. the muscle. Dissipates so too quickly. we needed to do it through a neurotransmitter. And the neurotransmitter that did it was acetylcholine. Yeah. Okay, and basically what activated its release is not sodium coming in, but calcium coming in. So yep. calcium flooded the end of the nerve which told those vesicles, which are kind of like little spaceships, to release all their little Martians, which are the acetylcholine. <laughs> and they go across the cleft and bind to this receptor, mm-hmm. which sits on a sodium channel. So there's a sodium channel, which is, let's just say, like a door. Okay, so you've got one side of the door, other side of the door. The, do- the other side of the door, which we're trying to get into, is actually inside the muscle cell. Okay, but the door's closed. Sodium can't get in to make it positive, right? But acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter, like you said, is like the key to the lock, opens the door for you, and then sodium just follows its gradient, which is from it's higher on the outside, lower on the inside, and it just floods inside the cell. Now, here's an important point. When you look at a neuron and you look at sodium jumping into a neuron, it only happens on the surface of that neuron cell. Okay, so what that means is when a sodium channel opens up, sodium will rush into the cell, but it only jumps into the cell and sits on the inner surface of the cell. Okay, there's not enough sodium to really diffuse throughout that entire cell. This is important because when it comes to a muscle cell, all of the contractile subunits, so the actinomycin, sit deep within that muscle cell. Which means when the sodium jumps in to a muscle cell, it's only jumping across the membrane and the positive sodium only sits on the inner membrane surface. Which means it's not actually reaching the um, contractile subunits. Which is the myosin. But we need some positive charge to reach there. Okay? Right. We need something to... So, how do we do this? Well... If you have a look at a muscle cell, skeletal muscle cell under the microscope, you'll find that there are little tunnels that go from the surface of the muscle deep within the muscle cell. And these are called T-tubules. And these T-tubules allow for the sodium to diffuse 
deep within the muscle cell, specifically to an area which is a chamber within the muscle cell that houses a huge amount of calcium. So just like at the end of the neuron where sodium told calcium to be released, in the muscle cell, sodium also tells calcium to be released. Mm. But this time the calcium is stored in a little compa- uh, compartment called what? Do you remember? Uh, well, they are an endoplasmic reticulum. Yes. Okay, but because we're in a muscle, what was that prefix again? Sarcoplasmic Okay, so reticulum. sarco, but we call it because it's a endoplasmic reticulum, we just add sarco, so sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is just like these balloons full of calcium, right? That's right. And so once this calcium is released, calcium can now diffuse throughout the inner, um, the deep aspects of the muscle cell. And what the calcium is, is a key. So, what we now need to talk about is the actinomycin in a little bit more detail and talk about what calcium can specifically do to tell actinomycin to contract. Okay. Now, actinomycin are sitting there, not contracting, not binding to one another. Like we said, the mycin heads need to bind to the actin and pull it inwards to contract. Easy. The problem is that the actin is really, really, really ready to bind to the actin. It wants to. It, it really doesn't take much to, for the mycin heads to bind to actin. Okay. But the problem is that the binding sites for mycin are taken up already. There's actually these little subunits, these little chains that are wrapped in the binding sites all around actin, like a bike chain. So right? basically, you, just to reiterate, you've got mycin and actin who have a... Uh, they're in love. They've got a great relationship here. Yep. But they are protected by something. So something won't allow them to be together. Can I use my analogy? Can <laughs> I use... Uh, can we go outside of the love analogy and use my bike analogy? All right. So okay. Let's just say that... A cyclist and, a bi- and, a, and the bike itself. How's that? Okay. Well, let me just use my analogy <laughs> and not, not let you ruin it. So if you think of the myosin and the myosin heads as being you... And you want to go Who's right... you? As in me? Are you talking about me? Yeah, you, me, everyone, does, as an individual, <laughs> right. right? As the mycin and the mycin heads. And you want to take your bike for a ride. Your bike is the actin. You really want to take the bike for a ride. Nothing's okay. stopping you. But the problem is, in order for you to Could use you your bike... Riding? In order for you to <laughs> use your bike, you need to hop on it and take it for a ride. But the problem is, it's chained up to a tree. Uh. Right? So you can't use it. So, that's the same thing here. The actin is chained up. There's a bike lock around it. Uh, sorry, there's a bike chain around it. Okay. Now, rap, a bike rap. chain is pointless without a bike lock. So, the bike chain right, okay. that's wrapped around the actin is Trop- called tropomycin. Okay. What's tropo mean? What does tropo mean? When well, so I said troposphere. Around? To turn. To turn. Mm. Oh, there you go. So, and this will make sense why in a second. Okay. So you've got the, this tropomycin, and the tropomycin is this bike chain yep. that's wrapped around all these actin Which filaments. The bike, yep. Right? But again, like I said, you need a bike lock to yep. hold into place. Yep. And, and this is called troponin. Troponin. So this is where students in exams sort of get confused. The tropomyosin is the bike chain yep. that's wrapped around, and the troponin is the bike lock. Yep. Which means that in order to use the bike, you need to undo the lock, mm-hmm. and the chain will fall off. Mm-hmm. The key to undoing the lock, i.e. the troponin, yep. is the calcium. Right. So calcium comes in, unlocks the troponin, 
and the chain, tropomycin, falls away, and now the actin, your bicycle, is free for you to ride, i.e. the mycin heads are free to bind to it. Yep. What a bloody good analogy. But ultimately, it requires the person to love riding. <laughs> <laughs> You're not letting go. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, okay. So now um, the mycin's free to bind to the actin. Yes. And it, like it's golf club, mm-hmm. it gives this power stroke like you would do playing golf. Yes. And that will then short or pull the actin towards the middle. Yeah. Okay. Which then would cause that shipping container to shorten in length. That's right. Does that sound right? Sounds good to me. However. Yes. Because they are in love so much. Uh. All right, because the person loves riding the push bike so much, you can't get them off it. Yes. They just won't come off. True. Okay? True. So you need a really powerful molecule to do that. Yeah. And the most powerful molecule in your body, energy-wise... Okay. I've looked this up. Okay. No, I haven't actually. I was going to say, because that's a ATP. ATP comes along. Adenosine triphosphate. Comes along and rips the person off the bike. Pulls the mice and head off the actin. Yeah. So let's, let's... can I just say that... You can say. Thank you. You've heard of rigor mortis before? No, let's not get to that point yet. Why not? Because this makes sense. That would be my one. This, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bring it up now, right? And you can correct me if I'm wrong, which I won't be. But everyone's probably heard of rigor mortis or known that when somebody passes... Rigor, stiff. Mortis, death. Yes, stiff death. Which means that a certain period after somebody's passed away... Mm-hmm you'll find that all their muscles become quite stiff and contracted, mm. right? Very stiff. Yep. And the question is why? And the answer is... It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's actually pretty simple. Once you know this process, it all makes sense. Mm. Matt just said that myosin really wants to bind to the actin, and if it's free, it will, and it will bind, do this power stroke and pull the actin inwards, and the muscle's contracted. Yep. But the myosin head is stuck and won't come off because it loves it so much. Oh, and we now, need now we're using myosin. Oh, no. <laughs> and we need the ATP to come along to tell the myosin head to come off. Yeah. Right? So when somebody passes away, they're no longer producing any ATP. Yeah. Right? The oxidative processes yep. aren't functioning. You need to have an active cell. To you need an active that. cell. And once there's no oxygen coming in, you may have anaerobic respiration happening for a short period. Yep. But no oxidative phosphorylation happening. So no ATP is being produced. Yep. Without ATP, the mice and heads don't come off. Yeah. Right? The other thing is that when you pass away, there's this huge efflux of calcium that get released from your sarcoposmic reticulum because the cells start to break down. Mm. So you now got this huge um, flux of calcium in the system, which unlocks all the spare bike chains. Okay. And now all the free myosin are free to bind to so every muscle in the body will have their mice and heads binding to their actin and mm. contracting. Yeah. But there's no ATP to tell it to come off. And and that, but that wouldn't all happen at once. It'd probably be quite slow. Quite slow, but yeah. then it would hit a point where pretty much all the muscle in the body is contracted. contracted. But it doesn't last for very long because, again, things start to degrade. Yeah, and this, and this raises an interesting point because mm. if you think about at least, say, butchers and so forth. Yeah, um, they and hang bakers and candlestick makers. No, just stay with butchers. Okay. They will hang their meat... So you would see in certain countries um, the meat is actually hung outside, uh, whereas, say, Australia, they'd probably have it in the cool room. So okay. Ooh, why? Okay, so what happens is uh, you hang in the meat and there's intrinsic enzymes within the muscle that starts to degrade this process. Not only stops the muscles being contracted, but actually allows us to be able to digest it. So if you were to hypothetically kill an animal, 
and then try to eat it straight away, yeah, the meat would be very difficult to digest. Okay. Okay. It has to actually go through a degree of um, degradation, not, not to go off. So what's the protein that's doing? There's this? a whole lot of enzymes within the muscle intrinsically that starts to d- degrade certain um, proteins yeah. that then allow you to be able to eat it. Yeah. So that's the reason that. why we generally you will wait days before you eat the muscle. Yeah, that's right. And that's why it's hung as well to allow the process to occur. Ah, I didn't realize that. Mm. There you go. So that's rigor mortis. Now, we've spoken about contraction, but we need to talk about how does the ATP tell the mice and head to be released, right? Yep. Okay, so ATP, adenosine with three phosphates, triphosphate. The energy comes from the release of one of those phosphates. That's where the energy comes from, which means ATP gives away energy and then forms ADP. Yeah. Makes so sense? So, diphosphate. Diphosphate. So, so two now. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, what happens is you've got the mycin head that's bound to the actin and has pulled it inwards. That's the stroke. It's stuck. ATP comes along, right? And with the release of a phosphate, the mycin head pops off. Yep. Okay. Now we've got ADP mm. bound to a released myosin head. Mm-hmm. But the myosin head is still in that stroke position, right? Yep. Which means the ADP needs to pop off so the myosin can go back to its original resting state position, yep. back to normal, and then can, can bind to again yeah. and do the stroke again. But it's, I think it's, it's important to state here that not only does ATP, when it comes in, releases it off... Mm. But it brings it back, so it almost cocks it back. That's right. And powers it ready for the next stroke. That's right. So it has to not only detach it, but it has to almost pull it back into a locked position. So when it gets a chance to bind to actin again, it can release all that power. So to make it easier, what ATP and ADP do is one, releases the myosin head from the actin after it's contracted. And pops the head back into its resting state position. Mm. Then, without the ATP, the myosin head binds and strokes. Yep. Right? And then ATP comes along, release, cock, then bind, stroke, and then the whole thing continues. And this is what we call the sliding filament theory. Yeah. So it's a theory, which means it's supported by scientific evidence like most theories, and it's probably the and it's the most probable in according accordance with the scientific evidence, but we don't actually know this 100%. Hmm. We just don't know this. We, we can't be 100% sure that this is happening. Does that make sense? It does. All right, so there's how skeletal so he, muscle contracts. Question, question talk about you, fun stuff. Question to you. Yeah. Um, so you spoke about this process of um, the sliding, sliding filament theory Yeah. and um, you know these golf clubs attached. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yep, yep. Swing and come back and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. What's the quickest this can happen? So, how quick can you stimulate this to allow your muscles From to contract? From what point? From which point? Just temporally, so in time. So, how quick can you contract your muscles? But from the neuromuscular junction and, and acetylcholine being released or from the calcium binding to the troponin? Like at what, starting at what point and finishing at what point? Starting at the myosin head binding and yeah, contracting and then releasing again? Yeah. Jeez, I don't know, 0.1 of a second? Okay, so, but, <laughs> but essentially, what, what this would, this would essentially, 
the process of not only... Because, like, when this occurs, okay, it's kind of like, uh, at least in that one muscle fibre, one muscle cell, it's kind of an all-or-nothing thing, right? You can't just have a few golf clubs doing it. They have to all mm. do it, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, that means that whole entire um, S- cell sarcomere. is going to work at its maximum, right? Yeah. Or at yeah. least that sarcomere will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, basically, how you can increase the force of contraction is to start to recruit more neurons into it. Mm-hmm. So, instead of just having one neuron that just activates, let's say, three muscle fibers in the bicep. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, You're learning. If, as if you... Now you add another 10 neurons. Yeah. Now you could... So, that's going to add another 30 skeletal muscle cells. Yeah. Okay. That's going to make the whole contraction at the bicep stronger. Sure. And you can keep recruiting more and more and more. So, this is coming from your brain, right? Mm. To say... Look at it, picking up this particular object and I need to... You kind of already know, I, I'm going to gauge that I need, you know, a quarter of my bicep to pick mm. this up. Okay. It's amazing how we can do this recruitment subconsciously. Yeah, through experience and so forth. Mm-hmm. And there is... And it's uh, and it's uh, attenuated by the cerebellum and, and, and basal... Well, that's a good point because if you there's actually a prefrontal cortex which works off um, having done this before. Correct. Which actually gets you to consciously or subconsciously think what you're about to do. Okay. Well, Let's we've all been in an experience where there's a, a box on the ground which okay, says 20 one, kilos yeah. and someone says, can you help me move this box? It's really heavy. Be careful. So, you know, you, you bend at the knees, you prepare your back, you're ready to recruit all these muscle fibers to hit, pick up this really heavy box and then all of a sudden you realize it's the wrong box and it's empty. Yeah. If you're ready to recruit all these muscle fibers, you're about to do a bloody backflip because you're mm. about to lift up right. so powerfully an empty box, but you don't. You you go, oh, and you attenuate and and sort of change on the fly how many muscle fibers you recruit and how much power you use, and this is because of the feedback that's yeah. going to your cerebellum, basal ganglia, yeah. and frontal cortex. That's, that's important to know because yeah. um, you're actually already determined what the muscle contraction would be required, and that's coming from your cortex yeah okay but the actual change in behavior or you know sometimes this has happened to me where someone throws a box to you and and they pretend that it's heavy and you brace yourself ready to be really heavy but it's actually empty yeah and you almost because you're going to catch it you almost throw it over your head yeah right yeah it's not, your, it's not your brain doing that. Yeah. It's actually the receptors in your muscle mm-hmm. that pick up that it's actually not heavy at all. It's mm. light. And then they quickly relay. And this can be receptors in your muscle and in your joints and in your tendons. Relay back to your spinal cord and say, hey, actually, this is light. Mm. Stop contracting so heavily. And then they'll modify it quickly. It's amazing. In milliseconds. Milliseconds. Phenomenal. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. When you do the motor system, Ugh. you just wonder how we can walk it's a wonder we can do any fine motor movement yeah. and we don't just <laughs> yeah, f- fall down all the time yeah. so let's add a few clinical aspects to it yeah. I think so. so let's the first one my qu- first question to you yes is you got that the acetylcholine that was released from the neuro sort the nerve yeah which is that neurotransmitter and it binds on the muscle cell yeah and then it opens the sodium channels yeah. and so forth what besides the cholinergic receptor? What's its other name? Or what's its other name? Okay, let me. There's a the drug. There's the a drug. There's yeah. a drug. 
yeah. that does the same thing. Yeah. It's a very common drug. It does the exact same thing as acetylcholine does or the neurotransmitter does. Uh, I think you're referring to the fact that when you look at acetylcholine receptors, known as cholinergic receptors, that you've got two different types. You've got muscarinic and nicotinic. And so these specific receptors that you find... So we just focus on the muscle here. Okay, okay. Just on the muscle here. So what's the drug? Nicotine. Nicotine. Yeah. And where do you find nicotine? Uh, your cigarettes. Yeah, cigarettes. So nicotine. <laughs> that doesn't smoke, by the way. Si- nicotine can actually much um, mimic, right? Yeah. And that can give you uh, a stimulus to the muscle. Mm-hmm. So I guess some of the effects that nicotine have is both centrally. So central nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, and didn't you say make you kind of feel good? Yeah, yeah. It w- works centrally and can play around with obviously acetylcholine and also dopamine as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now there's a disease. Is uh, yeah. I'm not sure how common it is, um, but it's taught quite extensively in medical school and nursing school because. Um, Many patients will have this. Mm-hmm. This disease is called myasthenia gravis. Okay, and basically, these patients will present. Um, I'm not really sure age. Probably early teens, maybe early adulthood. Twenties, thirties as well. With um, progressive weakness, so they would do repetitive activities, say like uh, hanging out clothes on the clothesline, where you have to, you know, bend down, reach up, bend down, reach up for all. Let's say five minutes, continually doing the same kind of activity. And what they find, over time, they're getting weaker and weaker. They just can't do it anymore, okay? So, what they've found in this disease... Now, before you talk about it, just so people can sit back and think, if we've told them everything that happens from the neuron to the muscle for a muscle to contract and produce a lot of force for contraction. And you've just said this disease results in muscular weakness. So, hopefully, people can sit back... Before you tell them exactly what's happening, sit back and think, at which of all these different points can things go wrong that could potentially result in muscle weakness, right? Mm. So maybe it could be something to do with the release of acetylcholine Mm -hmm. or the binding of acetylcholine or the sodium coming in or the calcium at some point or ATP. So I just want, that's how people should be thinking about this. Sorry, keep going. So basically what happens is your immune system, or in this per- particular people, this their immune system creates these antibodies. Mm. So they're um, a s- proteins that are shaped like the the letter Y, yeah. okay, that float down um, to the neuromuscular junction. And they can actually bind onto that acetylcholine receptor or destroy it. So if it binds to it, does that mean it's stimulating it? No, it just blocks it. So, uh, it sits okay. on it yeah. in that lock. So, it like sticks something in the lock. Ah, like and, putting like blue tack into yeah. a lock. And the acetylcholine can't open the door anymore. So, without the acetylcholine opening the door for sodium, no sodium comes in, no calcium comes in, no troponin is unlocked, no tropomycin chain is released, and no myosin is bound to actin, and no yeah. muscle is contracting, hence weakness. Yeah. So, how do they treat these individuals? Well, because you can't just have, you know, muscle paralysis or flaccid, no. flaccid paralysis your whole life, right? No. So I think uh, there's probably more novel drugs now, probably where they look at antibodies against these antibodies. Mm. Um, however, 
the most common treatment that I'm aware of is they just want to flood the synapse with as much acetylcholine as they can. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And so what they do is they create, because, oh, we should go back a step, um, when the acetylcholine, so this is normally for us, normally in our muscle junction, uh, acetylcholine just can't stay there forever, okay, because it will just keep telling the muscle contra- contract, right? So you don't want to keep doing this forever. So you mm. need to pull that acetylcholine off, okay? So there's a special enzyme in that synapse that rips it off out of the lock and cuts it in half. Half into choline, half into acetate, mm-hmm. okay? Acetate will go back in the bloodstream, go to the liver, blah, blah, blah. Because you, you actually make the acetate at the bottom of the neuron with your mitochondria, Yeah. okay? But the choline is more challenging. You need to put it back into the nerve and repackage it all. Now, this enzyme that does this is acetylcholinesterase. Okay, that's what it's called, the enzyme. Okay, now, there's drugs that block this enzyme. So, if you block acetylcholinesterase, you're blocking the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. And rips it out of the lock. And rips it out of the lock, so it can't be used. But ultimately, it's to be created into new acetylcholine, but it basically stops the amount of free acetylcholine that's available. So that acetylcholinesterase gets rid of free acetylcholine that's that's available at the synapse. Yeah, so any any excessive acetylcholine that's there, it will um, break down and remove mm. and it also take it off the the lock. Yeah. And so this drug blocks that enzyme so there's more acetylcholine there and the receptors that are still viable will be continually activated. Yeah. And so okay. that will give them the strength back. Okay. So that's a, a that's a an example of a disease that affects this thing we just spoke about. What about when you go to see your beautician? You tend to ask for a particular injection into certain parts of your face: eyebrow, oh, eyebrow ridge, lips, cheeks. What's this injection that you always get, Matt? Every time I see you, you look like you're just not impressed. Um, this is Botox, everybody. Well, actually, Matt, you shouldn't be saying Botox because that's a brand name, Michael. Is it? Okay. Uh, Clostridium uh, <laughs> botulinum, <laughs> which is the toxin that Botox is made from. Mm. Uh, is it Clostridium? Clostridium, oh, just like okay. tetanus. Clostridium tetani. But so Clostridium botulinum is the bacteria. Botulinum. Yeah, is the bacteria which produces the botulinum toxin, and what this does, you know. And this results in botulism. Botox and botulism. And you can get that... Very similar. That, that's commonly in deli goods, right? Like yeah. those meats. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go yep. on. What happens when you take Botox is Botox that... Botox is the brand name. You can't mention it. What happens when you have this botulinum toxin <laughs> is that it stops the release of acetylcholine from the motor neuron. Right. Which means no acetylcholine is released, no acetylcholine is binding no muscle contraction, and you get, again, that flaccid paralysis of the muscle, which is why people have that very plain sort of unimpressed So, so what does it actually face. do to the muscle? Results in flaccid paralysis. So it makes the whole muscle go floppy. Yeah. So paralyzes it. I don't know why people want... I mean, each to their own, but I'm not sure why people would like to do that. So... Inject botulinum... So, essentially, just to <laughs> reiterate, 
uh, if you were to inject it into your frontalis muscle, which we spoke about earlier, yeah. um, and that is a muscle that's important for contraction of eyebrows. Yeah. Um, and you, subsequently, over time, you can get those wrinkles in your forehead. That's it. It kind of just permanently, or not permanently, but over a long period of time, yeah. um, causes the muscle to be paralyzed. Uh-huh. Oh. That's right. Um, hence, people take it because obviously it reduces those facial However, wrinkles. However, I'm going to say this, and it's important to note, it can be used, botulism mm. can be used... Um, therapeutically yeah, yeah. in many good cases. So, example yeah. is, um, one of, I spoke to one of my colleagues in the dental school. He uses it um, as a dentist in um, TMJ issues. So, where people have... you got to tell people what TMJ is. Temporal mandibular joint. So, this yeah. is your chewing uh, joint in mm-hmm. your jaw um, becomes highly painful. And I think it's from a muscle imbalance in some cases. So, Paralyze in the his muscle. case, he will inject it into the one side that's maybe more powerful and w- weaken it up a bit, and that will re- relieve the pain. Sometimes they'll use it in people with cerebral palsy who have like a condition called spasticity, which is their muscles are really contracted up, mm-hmm. and um, that releases that and relieves their pain. So mm-hmm. it's and it's also in people who have this uh, profuse sweating oh, yeah. issue, so they in- inject it at the sweat gland. And because That's acetylcholine is required for sweating... Because that, that is a, a muscle, a little muscle, right? That helps. And remember that. that even though we sweat via the sympathetic nervous system, and the sympathetic nervous system uses adrenaline and adrenal receptors, mm. and the parasympathetic nervous system uses acetylcholine and cholinergic receptors, that sweating is the only sympathetic drive that results in acetylcholine release at the... Receptor. Okay. So that use uh, botulism stops acetylcholine from being released, stops the sweating from happening. Okay. All right. And I think the last thing, tetanus quickly, because botul- uh, uh, clostridium tetani, everyone's heard of getting their tetanus injections. For some reason, people keep thinking that tetanus comes from rusty nails and things like that. Rust has zero to do with tetanus. Okay. Why does it? Why is it? Why do people think that? Mm. Because rust. And rusty nails are often thought about on, you know, farms, places where there's a lot of dirt, a lot yeah. of soil, uh, and that's where mm-hmm. Clostridium tetani live, is in soil and dirt, fecal material and so forth. And that's yeah, where yeah. tetanus sits. So if you get a cut and you get the Clostridium tetani bacteria into you and it releases its tetanus toxin. So exotoxin, I think. Yep. An exotoxin. Do you know what this does? Well, by its name, it produces a condition called tetany, yeah. which is, I guess I was alluding to that before, whereas how much times can you stimulate a muscle before it kind of doesn't release and do this anymore? So, if, if you can think, I'm not sure if you've all done this, listeners, but there is a, uh, a, f- a physiotherapy technique, which is called a TENS machine, mm-hmm. which they put these kind of electrodes on you mm. and it artificially sends electrical stimulus into your muscles. And then that comes in pulses and each pulse it kind of sends in electrical activity, which kind of mimics the process we just did, right? And so if you send it at certain pulses, your muscles will contract at that pulse. But if you turn up the frequency, mm. it will get to a point where your muscles are just comp- continually contracted yeah, and you can't... So we did this in undergrad. We just turned it up on our friends mm. and they wouldn't be able to move their bicep or wherever you put it. 
And what's so that it's called? It's just locked in, completely locked in. That's called tetany. Yeah. And so and essentially, this is what happens. Yeah. So with tetanus, basically, it stops the motor nerve endings from releasing the, not the excitatory neurotransmitter acetylcholine, but the inhibitory neurotransmitters that tell muscles to stop contracting, which are GABA and glycine, uh. which means without inhibitory neurotransmitters, you've only got excitatory neurotransmitters, acetylcholine being released, and then all the skeletal muscle cells contract at once and the whole body feels like it's been torn apart mm. people have actually broken bones because that. they've contracted so their heavy. muscles so hard and so and intensely w- and that, that will eventually kill you right oh yeah and so is it respiratory Absolutely. failure or something that would eventually die? Uh, cardiac oh cardiac yeah. cardiac predominantly um, yeah so fascinating should we finish there that's there a lot of stuff I any other clinical points no look I think uh, we haven't spoken about the metabolism of, of skeletal muscle cells, but I think we'll do a whole. I think that will do for the muscle system metabolism. at this point. I think so. So, if you're listening to it now, which obviously you are to hear this, um, <laughs> we're going to mount to move on to another topic. I don't think we've got any in mind, have we? So no, we're going to go through the emails that people have sent us. Yeah, and so we're maybe gonna suggest one. Yeah, um, and we'll do that. Yeah. So we'll see you next week, everyone. Okay. Bye. And we'll aim to be next week. Oh, yeah. If we're gonna Mike's aim, bowels... We'll be doing... If my bowels function <laughs> appropriately, then it's going to be one a week. Our aim is to release two shorter episodes every week. That's our ultimate aim. But we need your constant support, meaning tell us that you like what we're doing. Tell us that you're listening to us. Uh, give us more rating, more five-star ratings on iTunes, and we'll really get this going. Thanks, everyone. See you.